Good morning. Good morning. You may be seated. I saw that video last night for the first time, and I was just sitting there going, oh, I hope he blinks. Because that was way too intense. I'm like, all right. Um, I did. I did blink. So otherwise, we, you wouldn't be watching that today. It's too scary. All right, take your Bibles out if you would, please, and turn to Philemon, book of Philemon. And um, it's in the back of your Bibles, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll put up the page number in a few moments. Uh, but uh, if you have a, um, your own, if you don't have your own Bible, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And if you're using a tablet or smartphone, we're using the NIV, the New International Version. So I just want to say something about baptism today. Uh, we, um, if you didn't sign up for baptism, but you are ready to be baptized. Uh, in other words, uh, you, you haven't signed up, but you have a personal relationship with Christ. You've put your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you want to get baptized today, you can still do it. Uh, you'll meet with one of our elders to tell a little bit of your faith story. Uh, you'll answer a few questions that'll be used to share uh, up front for um, someone will share on your behalf. We have towels for you, all that sort of thing. We had a couple of people last night in addition to the three that were baptized. And so right after the sermon, like while I'm praying, you can get up and there'll be an elder in the center section over there. Pastor John, Jonathan will be there. Uh, so if you decide to get baptized. If you're not ready yet, if you're just like, I still am not quite sure, write baptism on your communication card. We'll send you some information about baptism and we can go through with that next time. I, um, I just want to encourage you not, not to put it off any longer than you already have. And uh, it's, it's a first step in discipleship and following Jesus as his follower. It's the way that he put it. Uh, and uh, he showed the way for us. And when you get baptized, you're making a public profession of your faith. And it says things that are profound. We're going to look at a couple of them when we get to the very end of the sermon today. Uh, so um, you, can, you can do that. All right. So if you're brand new with us, I think I have one right here. Hopefully you got the new here brochure on your way in. And on the inside there is a sermon application guide. And you can use this for taking notes throughout the sermon. Uh, there's questions there for family. Normally we're doing what the kids are doing. We're not this week uh, because I extended last week's sermon into this week. Uh, so the questions, the family discussion questions are based on what the kids are doing. Uh, and there's also reflection questions that we use in our small groups, but also personally they can be used for reflection. Uh, so Today, we're extending a sermon from last week where we looked at the book of Philemon. And we're looking specifically at some challenging questions and they have to do with the Bible and slavery and with Christians and, um, and racism. And so the reason we're, we're focusing in on that is because uh, Philemon is a book written by the Apostle Paul to a slave owner asking him to receive back a runaway slave that has come to him, that has become a follower of Jesus after coming to him for help. And he's sending him back. And he tells his friend Philemon, he says, uh, receive him back as a brother, not as a slave. So uh, 
I, I thought that would be a great opportunity to kind of hunker down for a couple of weeks and look at a couple of tough, tough questions uh, that we face. So this, this sermon, like last week, but not quite, not quite as much as last week, is going to come across to some people as more like a college lecture than as a sermon. And I, I recognize that. And there's some times where we have to do that, where we just have to spend some time and get into some details, even though, under, understand me, we, we barely scratched the surface last week and we're barely gonna scratch the surface this week. We're not in a college class. So, but it will feel that way. And, and so, uh, if you're new with us, just, just want you to know that normally we work our way through passages of the Bible. We're not doing that today. Uh, we read the whole book of Philemon. We'll read a little bit this week. I commented on it more last week. I'm going to comment a lot less this week. So you should just uh, know that. Students, um, I want to speak to you especially because you're already coming across in school, YouTube, wherever, in various kinds of places. You're already coming across some, some tough questions to your faith. And when you go, uh, it, when you leave home, whether you're going to a job or you're going to school or you're going into some trade, uh, you're going to be hit at a much higher, higher level with questions about faith and challenges to your faith than you can possibly imagine. And if you want to, if you want to stick a dagger in my heart, uh, when you come across those, all you need to say is, well, my church never talked about those things. And so I wasn't ready for them. And you will, you will have destroyed me. Uh, so I just want to let you know that that's why we're talking about it. And, and some of it, if it's, if, if you struggle with some of the content or whatever, if you have more questions, I'm available to talk uh, at any time. And so is our youth pastor, Pastor Henry, and so is our family pastor, Pastor John, and, and your parents, I'm sure, would be more than willing to, to talk to you about these things. So um, just to let you know that. So last week, we asked a, a particular question, uh, which was, why doesn't the Bible simply prohibit slavery? If you think about it, maybe it would have made a difference in our country, you know, 1,900 years later, 1,400 years later, and, and beyond. Uh, and, and so or, uh, it, would have, it, it would have made a difference for us. And it would have made a difference for um, our people and our history. And so we addressed that. And, um, and so uh, I'm going to summarize. It's not really a summary. I'm just going to give you three points. I'm just going to give you like three, three highlights that I want to give you. One of them is new. Two of them come from last week. And again, this barely scratches the surface of last week. So um, summary of sorts. First of all, the Bible doesn't answer that question. It doesn't prohibit slavery, and then it doesn't answer that question of why it doesn't. There's not like a chapter and verse you can go to that just explains why it is that God allows slavery uh, with the people of Israel, for example. And so um, I, I, I wish it did. That's the best thing I can say. I wish it did. And the best answers that I can come up with are leave me somewhat unsatisfied when I think of, you know, project it out. Um, it, it creates a tension in, in me. Uh, as, a as a follower of Jesus and as a believer in God's word as his authoritative word. So, second thing, this is more, this is something I wish I'd said last week, but I didn't. And that is that from a biblical worldview, God doesn't owe us any answers. Now that sounds really harsh, but hear me out on this. God doesn't owe answers to the authors and perpetrators of the evil and hell that we have perpetrated in this world. That's us. 
we have messed up this world. God created it. I mean, that's the story arc of Scripture. And, and so we have created the hate, the slavery, the Holocaust, all those things, the genocide. We are the ones that created it. And if we come to God and say, why won't you give me an answer? God doesn't, God doesn't owe us anything because every single one of us contributes to it. Now, we do a story of God course experience uh, here. It's an orientation to the whole Bible and to Christianity and to discipleship. And in that course, one of the things that we really hunker down on is this whole idea that uh, Adam and Eve's sin had a ripple effect and all of our sins have a ripple effect. In other words, we see a little time, well, I've, I've, not, I've not done any big sins. And yet the sins that we commit are still rippling out. Many, many of our sins are still having their effect from years ago. And so something that starts out like we consider small, we consider small, becomes something big. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God could have opened a portfolio of the rest of their sins, and it would have included the Holocaust and slavery in America. That's what they unleashed. Their sins created that. And all of our sins, all of us, creates the hell on earth that we can see all around us. And so um, it's God. Now, there is another thing that I don't say often enough. I really become aware of this. And that is that the good that we do also has a ripple effect. But we need to understand that the ripple, and, and you know this because you can see it, that of all the good that people have done in the world, it has not been sufficient to undo the evil that has been unleashed, right? It's not been sufficient. So the ripple effect of good has not been enough to overcome the ripple effect of evil. Not only that, the Bible tells us the good that we do is not sufficient to make us right with God. So God, by his grace, sent his son to die on the cross for us. And he pays the price for the evil that we have unleashed. He dies in our place. His blood is shed for us. And so he does that out of his love and his grace. And then he gives to his people his word and his word gives us the wisdom and it is sufficient to give us the wisdom that, that we need to arrive at God, a God-honoring life and a life that flourishes in the constraints of our broken world. God doesn't owe us anything. The third thing, kind of in review of last week, is that while God doesn't prohibit slavery, and this is where we kind of ended last week, God, God's commands to his people totally undermine the institution of slavery back in the day and even today. They're carried out and undermines the institution of slavery. And that is an act of pure grace and mercy that he would do that for us. And um, in undermining slavery, uh, God provides the motivation and the things that he said, provides the motivation, the reasoning, the mindset for overturning slavery. And if you look historically, as slavery has been overturned, there have been economic factors, sociological factors, but the prime mover in overturning slavery has been a Christian mindset, whether it was led by Christians or people impacted by the worldview of Christianity, of the Bible, that gives worth to human beings. Because you're not going to have any kind of objective worth from any other source except the Bible. So... Again, only scratching the surface, uh, I, have, I will be posting this afternoon um, 
again, my sermon from last week, the manuscript, I'll, I'll do this manuscript there as well, a bunch of articles that I found helpful, way more than you could probably, unless you really are wanting to study this topic, way more than you can, but you can do a quick overview and you can see some of the quotes in there at the very least and hold on to it as a resource for possibly going in deeper later. You, you'll be able to answer these kinds of questions way better once you answer these kinds of questions. <laughs> Once you're forced to answer these questions and simply hearing a sermon and trying to digest it. All right, so we live in a tension. It's not the only tension we have. There's all kinds of questions. If you want to live Christianity where all your questions are going to be answered perfectly and satisfying and there isn't going to be any tension, um, I just tell you right now, you're never going to have that. So somehow you're going to have to come to, to peace with that if you're going to follow Christ and be a thinking Christian. All right, so we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into today's passage and today's question. So um, this prayer is based on Titus chapter 3, so please join me in this prayer where we ask God for him to illuminate his scripture. Heavenly Father, your love for us is revealed in the gift of your Son. You knew our need for a Savior, and you sent your Son to free us from the sin and death that we deserved you have called us your children, and your faithfulness to us is unwavering. By your Spirit, lead us to a deeper understanding of your heart. Break down the barriers that prevent us from loving others the way that you call us to. Find our hearts in unity with our brothers and sisters in you, that we might work together to live out the gospel and to share the good news with all people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I've given a little bit of an introduction to Philemon, the slave. Onesimus is going back. He's carrying this letter from the Apostle Paul. And I'm just going to read a uh, short section. If you look at verse 12, we're going to read verse 12 through 15, 17. Paul writes, I'm sending Onesimus, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to have keep him with me so that you, he could take your place in helping with me while I am in chains for the gospel. The Apostle Paul is in, is in uh, prison for the gospel and probably in Rome and just saying, I wish Onesimus could stay here. You can't be with me, but he could kind of take your place. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, and even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Okay, so here's, here's today's question we're looking at. How could Christians have been defenders... Christians, and we're not talking about like nominal Christians, meaning people who just kind of show up at church and they don't really have a commitment to Christ, maybe aren't very informed about Christianity. We're talking about committed, some of the best theologians uh, in our past. How could Christians have ever been defenders and participants in American slavery? Because they were, embarrassingly so. And um, so I want to offer an answer, and then I want to finish off by, by uh, simply saying, well, how can, we, how can we seek to not repeat the same mistakes uh, that they made? We will make mistakes, but how can we seek not to? Uh, 
So back in 2017, late 2017, Albert Moeller appointed six people from the Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary to do a study on the racism and slavery uh, involved with the founders of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. The report came out at the end of 2018. Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is the largest seminary in the world um, by far. And it is, um, the report was released last December. Uh, there's an accompanying letter that even if you don't read the report, it would be worth reading the letter. I will be posting that um, because I think he models lament and he models repentance and he does some very good things in there, although you may not agree with everything that he says in there. But uh, one of the things that he does is he apologizes for not doing this sooner. And he said, we've been kind of riding the coattails of the 1995 resolution of repentance by the whole Southern Baptist denomination in its 150th anniversary, um, speaking about the slavery that was a major issue in even the forming of the Southern Baptist denomination. In other words, some Baptists broke off because they would not support slavery, and the Southern Baptists did. And so in 1995, they, um, and he said, we've been riding those coattails and we never should have. We should have come face to face with our own, the seminaries. And he's been president there for like 26 years. So he asks this question, which is the question that we're asking pretty much uh, in his letter. He says, how could Christians hold simultaneously such right and wrong beliefs? And then he says this, how could a heroic figure, for example, this is an example he gives, how could a heroic figure like Martin Luther, the founder of you know, the whole Reformation, the beginning of the Reformation, that great paragon of the Reformation, teach, defend, and define the glorious truths of the gospel while expressing vile, medieval anti-Semitism? And he did. And he says the questions come again and again, and eventually the questions come home. You look at people over, you know, all the way out there in Germany, but eventually the questions come home. And then he, he writes this. How could our founders, James P. Boyce, John Brodus, Basil Manley Jr., and William Williams, serve as such defenders of biblical truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the confessional convictions of the seminary, and at the same time own human beings as slaves based on an ideology of race and defend American slavery as an institution? Well, the answer is contained, the answer to our question at least is contained in his question. How could Christians have ever been defenders and participants in American slavery? And the answer is because of an ideology of race. That's the answer. It's a racist ideology. Christians defended and participated in European and American slavery because they held to a particular kind of racist ideology. Um, what's the content? of this ideology. We could spend a lot of time, you know, quoting all kinds of people and I could give you, uh, you know, there's some articles actually where I put in my blog where you can see the arguments that were being made and where this ideolo ideology is being played out. But rather than do that, uh, I just wanna go back to 2012 to a rap artist uh, by the name of Propaganda who's a follower of Jesus and he addresses our questions in a roundabout way in a song that he calls Precious Puritans. And he offers the same answer as Moeller, but then he goes into a little bit more detail than what I just quoted you just now. 
Now, because the song is called Precious Puritans, I wish I could give a little background for everybody on who the Puritans are because there are a lot of you know, diverse ideas and some of you don't even know who the Puritans were, but they were very much involved in the founding of this country, very, very important figures in the founding of this country and influenced, uh, influenced our theology even to this day. And there's been a resurgence of reading the prayers and sermons and books of the, um, of the Puritans in recent years. And so you have Puritans like Jonathan Edwards, and maybe you've heard of Jonathan Edwards, who lived from the beginning of 1700s, 1703 to 1758. And Edwards is considered by many people to be the greatest theological mind ever produced in the Americas. Uh, and uh, to this day. And yet he owned two slaves. Uh, he never preached on slavery. Uh, he... The only thing that has survived that he said about slavery are some notes that he was going to use in a talk, that he did use in a talk, where he went to a church to defend a pastor who was being kicked out by, his, by that pastor's church because he owned slaves. This guy was, uh, theologically speaking, uh, on the other side of Edwards, but he went there to defend him and to defend his owning of slaves. So... Um, he argued for it along the same lines as so many people did back then. We addressed this last week and the flaws in this argument, but you know that if you follow the biblical uh, instructions, you can treat your slaves like family and you can treat them with respect and so on, all those kinds of arguments that were deeply and profoundly flawed. Now, there are um, some people who excuse Edwards Puritans and others in our, among our founding fathers excuse them by saying, well, they were products of their time. It's not an excuse. <laughs> because in their time, there were people that were arguing against slavery using the Bible. And they were debating them. So there's, it's like there's no excuse. One of the things Moeller says, there's no excuse for what our founders said and what they did for the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So um, precious Puritans by propaganda, I'm just gonna tell you right now, it's pretty hard hitting, especially he targets pastors, uh, white pastors. And so it would be very tempting for me to recoil. And there is a part of me that's like, oh. Um, but in, in targeting pastors, he, you, you won't, you won't uh, be left out. <laughs> um, so you'll be in with me on this. And all I can say, I can just implore you to really listen and to re-listen and to re-listen, you're not going to get all the content. You're not going to get his ending probably the first time. You may. You go, what? Where'd that go? Um, where did he end up there? And so I just want to encourage you to, uh, to listen to it. I will post it as well on my blog post. So with that said, let's listen as we watch the, uh, the words, the, the lyrics of Precious Puritans. to deal with some in-house issues here. Hey, pastor, you know it's hard for me when you quote Puritans. Oh, the precious Puritans. Have you not noticed our facial expressions? One of bewilderment and heartbreak, like not you too, pastor. You know they were chaplains on slave ships, right? Would you quote Columbus to Cherokees? Would you quote Cortez to Aztecs, even if their theology was good? 
It just seems a blind privilege, wouldn't you agree? Your precious Puritans. They looked my onyx and bronze skin forefathers in their face. Their polytheistic, God-hating face. Their shackled, diseased, imprisoned face. And saw the gospel that said that God had multiple images in mind when he created us in it. Therefore, destined salvation contains a contentment in the stage for which they were given, which is to be owned by your forefathers. Superior image-bearing face, says your precious Puritans. And my anger towards this teaching screams of an immature doctrine and a misunderstanding of the gospel. I should be content in this stage, right? Isn't that what Paul taught? According to your precious Puritans. Oh, you get it, but you don't get it. Oh, then we can go back to an America that once were founded on Christian values. They don't build preachers like they used to. Oh, the richness of their revelation. It must be nice to not have to consider race. It must be nice to have time to contemplate the stars. Pastor, your colorless rhetoric is a cop-out. You see my skin, and I see yours. And they are beautiful, fearfully and wonderfully, divinely designed. Uniqueness. Shouldn't we celebrate that rather than act like it ain't there? I get it. Your Puritans got it. But... How come the things the Holy Spirit showed them in the valley of vision didn't compel them to knock on their neighbor's door and say, you can't own people. Your precious Puritans were not perfect. You romanticized them as if they were inerrant, as if the skeletons in their closet was pardoned due to their hard work and tobacco growth, as if abolitionists were not racist and just pro-union, as if God only spoke to white boys with epic beards. You know, Jesus didn't really look like them paintings. That was just Michelangelo's boyfriend, your precious Puritans. Oh, they got it, but they don't get it. It's not one generation of believers that has figured out the marriage between proper doctrine and action. Don't pedestal these people. Your precious Puritans, partners, purchase people. Why would you quote them? Step away. Think of the congregation that quotes you. Are you an errant? Trust me, I know the feeling. Same feeling I get when people quote me like if they only knew. See, I get it, but I don't get it. <laughs> Ask my wife. And it bothers me when you quote Puritans, if I'm honest. For the same reason it bothers me when people quote me, they precious propaganda. So I guess it's true that God really does use crooked sticks to make straight lines. Just like your precious Puritans. So that's it. <laughs> um, the Puritans and other Christians, actually, let me back up. The answer to our question comes early in the song. He says this, they looked at my onyx and bronx, bronze skin forefathers in their face, they, their polytheistic, God-hating face, their shackled, diseased, imprisoned face, and taught a gospel that said that God had multiple images in mind when he created us in it. That is what they taught. Therefore, destined salvation contains a contentment in the stage for which they were given, which is to be owned by their forefathers' superior image-bearing face says your precious Puritans. That is the racist theology. They 
taught that black people were lesser in the image of God than white people. The Puritans and other Christians that defended American slavery had a racist way of reading the creation narrative that has no backing whatsoever in the Bible. They just read, made in the image of God, and they imported an idea from their time that only some people held onto the reading of made in the image of God in Genesis 1. And, and really, as I've thought about this, I really believe that um, I don't know that a biblical prohibition against slavery would have stopped that. I'm actually fairly certain it wouldn't have stopped the slavery that we experience in our country because that's how you get around it. You say, well, we can't enslave people made in the image of God, but we can enslave people who are not quite made in the image of God and we're destined to rule over those people. So think of it this way. If Christians can support anti-Semitism, and they do, even though God, in their Bibles, the vast majority of their Bibles is about God's work with the Jewish people as being his people. If Christians can support anti-Semitism and argue anti-Semitic arguments, and, and it's, I mean, it's part of what led into the Holocaust. If they can do that, in spite of the fact that the Apostle Paul said things like, I wish that I could be damned and separated from God and that my people, the Jews, could be saved. If I could, if I could trade my salvation for my people, the Jews, I would. And he said that I am not done, God is not done with his people. He has a plan, a merciful plan for his people. If, if people can support anti-Semitism in spite of the fact that Jesus was a Jew, that all the Christians for the first at least dozen years of Christianity, all, except for maybe a couple exceptions, were Jews. All of them. All the apostles were Jews. The ability for human mind to, to hold and then teach Horrible ideas is staggering. Staggering. The answer to our question today is simply racism. But how, but the answer to how Christians could be racist is another more complicated question. And I'm only going to give a simple answer and then one that maybe points to something more complex. But the simple answer is this. Christians can be racist for the same reason, the same, same reason that Christians can still sin. And we do, every single one of us. That's why. God is not through in his project with us. He is not through with us. It will not be complete until the day of Christ, the day Christ returns. And so we all at any given time have bad ideas and commit bad actions that ripple out and impact all kinds of people. That's why propaganda says don't pedestal people, period. The complex answer is found in tracing the entire story of God, beginning with creation, moving to humanity's separation from God through sin, by sinning, which is separating themselves from God. The redemption that comes eventually through Christ, but 
is worked out through the people of God, and then the story of the new creation. It's as you look at that whole story that you get a little bit more into the complexities of how is it that Christians can still sin and can still be racist. Some people don't like the answers and they try to explain away some of the answers because they want, in my opinion, they want to elevate humanity and they, they de-elevate God. Um, but the answers are there. What can we do to not repeat their mistakes? Pull it together here. One is to hold biblical convictions humbly. Might be tempting to not hold any convictions at all and say, wait, we're such flawed people. Let's not, let's not hold it to anything tightly. Let's, let's not have any well-formed convictions, doctrines, beliefs. Let's not have that because at any point we could be proven wrong. If you do that, you understand that you will not have the convictions to try to overcome injustice in our world. People who hold convictions lightly would never have been on the forefront because of their relationship with God and because of the Bible. They never would choose to be on the forefront of the fight against slavery. So don't hold them light. Hold them strongly. Be bold in your convictions, but hold them humbly. Meaning, always ready to be corrected if you see that the scripture, if the community speaks to you, if your fellow brothers and sisters can show you where you are importing ideas into the scripture. So we have to, we have to be humble. Um, number two, in the words of propaganda, beware of placing people on pedestals. There's only one true hero in scripture and that hero is Jesus. Really, one ultimate true hero. And when you make the people in the Bible, yes, they did heroic things. And yes, they showed us the way of faith. And the Bible venerates them in many ways, but there's only one true hero comes through in the end because all of their flaws are shown and not hidden. There's only one true hero and that's Jesus. He's our Lord and Savior. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. He's the one true hero. And then finally, know the story of God, the story of creation, sin, redemption, and new creation. Just get to know that story. Story of creation gives us our worth and dignity. Why it is that we actually have worth and dignity. Um, all peoples, regardless of race, ethnicity, or gender, it's right there in the story of creation. It's not based on some opinion. It's not based on a constitution that failed so many people. It's based on the word of God. That is, we are made in the image of God. And so, you know, in the words of propaganda, again, you see my skin and I see yours, and they are beautifully, fearfully, wonderfully, divinely designed uniqueness. Story of redemption, story of the cross, should obliterate any sense of superiority. Christians, I say this all the time. I don't always practice it. But Christians among all people in the earth should be the humblest people because we are broken sinners who continue to sin even though we have the Holy Spirit. We have something that the rest of the world doesn't have and we still sin. The fact that the story is not over yet and we await a new creation should liberate any sense of false expectations of what we should get in this world. We should fight for justice. We should fight for the... And we should fight for justice. 
but we should not um, expect that in this world we're gonna reach some kind of utopia or new creation in this world. We need to go forth with a realistic biblical view of the brokenness of our world. And it's from this perspective, from this story, from the perspective of the cross that, that, that Paul, without ever mentioning the cross, he applies the cross to the, to the situation with Philemon. And he says, accept them back without penalty as a brother, as you would accept me, not as a slave. And it's from this perspective that we get a deeper understanding about what we're about to celebrate, which is baptism. And so let's, let's just read a passage in Romans and then we're going to pray. Um, it's Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse Three, where it says, oh, or don't you know, the Apostle Paul writes, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism unto, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Okay, that's describing what is happening. What is this baptism showing? It's showing our death with Christ which gives us the ability to rise with Christ as Christ rose from the dead. Listen to the language in the following verses. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in the resurrection like his. For we know that our old self has been crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy, for putting up with us, for coming to us, for loving us, for giving us what we don't deserve. To you be the glory. May we live for your glory, not our own glory. Father, as we continue our celebration through baptisms, through celebrating the Lord's Supper together, I pray, Father, that we would be responding wholeheartedly to what you have done. You have set us free. You have given us a freedom, a freedom to live a life that you've called us to live. We thank you for the transformation that you're working in us, and I pray, Father, that we would cooperate with what you're doing, what your spirit is doing, so that we would more and more reflect your image in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's where we're going in the next few moments. Um, we're going to begin our response to God, uh, to his word. And we do this every week. We celebrate communion together. And so during the next song, uh, you can come to the front or the back of your follower of Jesus. Come take the bread and dip it in the cup, remembering his body and his blood. And, um, and that just happens in, in any kind of order. If you're new with us, it happens in any kind of order during this first song. So when you're ready, come on up. We have a prayer stations up here where as you light a candle, you pray. Uh, if this is something you want to do, these are all optional, um, where you pray for the light of Christ to shine in the life of someone who's far from God. We'll have someone from our prayer team back there. And then after this first song, we will celebrate baptism together. All right, so let's continue our worship together. <laughs> 